to the Scent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 169, the post-shutdown edition. We are talking to the illustrious Sarah Nelson, as well as George Faraday of Good Jobs Nation, about how workers are faring in the aftermath of the shutdown and what the next steps might be. But first, the news. You might think the top corporations are basically above the law, and in many cases you'd be right. But sometimes corporate malfeasance is brought to justice in our nation's courts. It's just that you seldom hear about it. The watchdog group Good Jobs First has combed through the reams of court documents across the country to unearth a big stack of legal settlements that have been negotiated quietly between the largest U.S. corporations and their aggrieved workers. These resolve disputes involving primarily uh, basic civil rights claims for gender and racial discrimination, for example, wage theft, and other violations of workplace rights. Their latest report focuses on civil rights claims that have forced major corporations to dole out more than $2.7 billion since 2000 to various claimants. This might just be a rounding error compared to the collective profits of these Fortune 500 companies, but they do show that even short of a full-scale jury trial, legal claims that do manage to get heard before a real court of law do result in damage awards for workers. In many cases, of course, these settlements are only rough justice, providing some compensation for pain and suffering following a deeply degrading or traumatic experience at work. The violations include systematic racial discrimination in hiring and promotions in Coca-Cola's corporate sector, as well as pay discrimination against low-wage women working as associates at Walmart. Ultimately, all of these claims are based on civil rights laws that many workers never have a chance to really avail themselves of. So in that sense, the plaintiffs who do get settlements can be considered relatively fortunate. Nevertheless, the statistics do give some indicator of the real injustice that's out there, much of which never makes it to the judge's bench um, because of barriers to class action lawsuits and just the sheer burden of going through a litigation process, especially when you're a low-wage worker and are going up against a, a huge corporate army of lawyers. Beyond the courts, what these workers need ultimately is a greater voice at work and greater political representation in the broader economy, and they ultimately need unions to stand up for them whenever they suffer a rights violation at work. The report points to the value of organizing and actually helping workers hold corporate power to account. Otherwise, workers' fates are left to an increasingly unreliable and rigged legal system that corporations have become experts in gaming. I spoke to Philip Matera, research director of Good Jobs First, about what the report means and how might organizers learn from it. It wouldn't surprise people necessarily that, you know, massive companies like Walmart don't have a great track record when it comes to, say, you know, shorting workers on overtime or something. But is there anything new from what we learned from these lawsuits? Yeah, I mean, what we found in, you know, in both of these, you know, reports is that these kinds of labor violations are pretty pervasive throughout big business. And it's not just the kind of well-known low-road employers like Walmart, you know, that are involved. You know, in, in the uh, wage theft area, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, that there were 
you know, high tech companies, that there were um, pharmaceutical companies, financial services companies, et cetera. You know, not just the usual, you know, kind of retailers, you know, or sweatshop employees, although there aren't too many of the traditional you know, sort of apparel sweatshops left in this country. But, you know, there are other kinds of employers that are just, you know, known for these practices. But what we found is that, you know, these companies basically will cheat anybody, you know, will we'll cheat not just the, the low paid people, but even some fairly well paid people, including, you know, professionals and you know, white collar people. What are some of the chief complaints and how might some of those problems be addressed? In the wage theft area in particular, if you live in California, you're lucky because there are um, state laws that um, make it easier you know, to bring actions against employers. The other thing that's happening is that there's more enforcement action by state and sometimes local uh, agencies you know, including criminal actions. I mean, this is kind of a new development. You know, the, the term wage theft, you know, was originally kind of used in a loose sense. But some people are saying, well, wait a second, this is literally a form of theft. And why not treat it as a criminal offense? And there have been some cases that have been brought in you know, states like New York, you know, by district attorneys where they actually haul a boss into court, you know, saying, hey, you know, you stole money from your you know, from your workers, you know, we're going to bring criminal charges against you. And that, that really shakes up an employer. I mean, if you were an ordinary worker, what might be some of the things that you either should look for if you do have a grievance? And what are some alternative ways of either seeking damages or at least just having some kind of due process available to you? Well, I mean, obviously, the, be- the best solution is to have a union. <laughs> um, I know that's easy to say, but it's, it is the best remedy for, uh, for these kinds of problems. If not, you, know, you can file complaints with, you know, with either state you know, or federal authorities. The Trump Labor Department, unfortunately, is going in the wrong direction. They're backing away from enforcement and emphasizing voluntary compliance because you know, they've come up with the ridiculous notion that a lot of these um, wage and hour infractions are accidental, that employers just kind of by mistake don't pay people the right amount. So they're kind of calling on employers to voluntarily come forward and, and kind of admit that they, they made a mistake mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll pay a, a lighter penalty. I mean, obviously that, you know, that's just a um, window dressing for, um, you know, weakening enforcement. So, you know, things don't look as promising at the federal level, but, you know, there still are states that take this seriously. Again, California is very aggressive. You know, some states don't pay much attention to it at all. So it's kind of an accident of geography in terms of how much kind of justice you're going to get in this area. That was Philip Matera, Research Director of Good Jobs First. In continuing teacher strike wave news after three days on the picket line, the Denver Classroom Teachers Association has reached a deal with the district and ended its strike. The deal includes, according to the Denver Post, an average 11.7% increase in base salary next year, a transparent 20-step salary schedule that starts at $45,800 a year and tops out at 100000 for teachers with 20 years of experience and a doctorate, full cost of living increases in the second and third years of the agreement, the ability to use professional development units, free in-district courses offered to advanced teachers' education to move up lanes in the salary schedule, an end to bonuses for senior DPS administrators, and an additional $23.1 million in funding for teacher compensation. 
DPS math teacher Kathleen Brown, 72 years old, spoke to reporters after napping during the marathon near 20-hour bargaining session that resulted in the deal. She said, I would make less than $200 at this point out of these deals. This is for the next generation of teachers and those thinking of becoming teachers. One day they will replace me and I won't be sleeping on the floor of bargaining sessions anymore. The core of the struggle was an unreliable pay system based on incentives rather than regular raises. Colorado teachers had taken part in the Red for Ed actions last year, but this was a more formalized strike. Coming right on the heels of the groundbreaking Los Angeles teachers' strike and their incredibly groundbreaking contract, the Denver teachers rode that momentum and got support from their students, who filmed themselves having dance parties in schools and chanting, pay our teachers, and the families. Despite a bargaining process that at times turned very ugly, including DPS threatening to report strikers who might be here on visas to ICE and threatening to use locked out federal workers as scabs, speaking of, well, more to come on that subject later, the deal is another step forward for teachers who are done sitting back and taking the public discourse that blames them for the problems with public education. They continue to defy the right wing's plans to destroy public sector unions after Janus, to defend the public sector, and to inspire. Next stop, Oakland. Consumers like to think that they're doing the right thing when they pick a product with the label of fair trade or organic. Such certifications are intended to sate our liberal impulses to make the world a slightly better place every time we go to the supermarket. But in Honduras, the story behind the label is not so pretty. Melon farm workers in Honduras have been pushing for about two years for a union contract with the Irish agribusiness Fife's, which has long held the fair trade label, after the establishment of STAS, a branch of the Labor Federation Festigro. They have demanded full compliance with both domestic and international labor laws, accusing the company of systematic minimum wage violations, denial of social benefits, and out-and-out union busting. The campaign has been met with fierce resistance from bosses. Many workers have been allegedly fired for their organizing activities, and after months of clashes, Fife's appeared to relent to these pressures in January, agreeing to begin a collective bargaining process with Stas. However, there was a February deadline for the start of the talks, and International Labor Rights Forum a U.S.-based group that has been advocating on behalf of the Honduran workers, has accused Fife's of stalling and lagging on a promise to reinstate the unfairly dismissed workers. And as of February 12th, the organization reports that the company has completely reneged on the agreement and failed to respond to workers' grievances. Fife's, which operates under the Honduran subsidiary Suragro, has a long track record of labor violations in the melon fields, including numerous safety problems and massive wage theft. A 2012 labor rights complaint filed by the AFL-CIO under the provisions of the Central American Free Trade Agreement triggered an international investigation by the Labor Department, and under the Obama administration, labor inspectors from the U.S. ultimately validated many of the long-standing claims of abuse. Yet none of this was enough to get Fair Trade to decertify the company. And now Fair Trade USA has finally relented uh, late last year, but the abuses seem to continue with impunity. Now, most Americans hear about Honduras through news about the border and Trump's crackdown on these migrants. 
But in addition to battling Trump's anti-immigrant tactics at the U.S. border, back in Honduras, deep in the melon plantations, it's ground zero for the struggles of working people. And when they have a union victory, and when U.S. corporations and the entire supply chain starts to listen, then that can only be a victory for workers all across the hemisphere. This week in New York, the big news was Amazon pulling its headquarters out of the city. But there is a less reported story. The introduction of bills that would provide just cause protections for the fast food workers who kicked off the fight for 15. I spoke with city council member Brad Lander, the sponsor of one and co-sponsor of the other bill. Tell me about the just cause bills that were just introduced in the city council. Yeah, yesterday was very exciting. We had to stand on the city hall steps with a whole bunch of fast food workers who have been organizing for years now, starting, you know, with the fight for 15, in which all along they've been saying, you know, $15 an hour and a union. Right. And I don't think people at the beginning took either part of that seriously. <laughs> um, no. Nope. As they have, you know, organized across the country and won 15 here in New York and in so many other places. They've kept organizing because right. Anna Union means all kinds of other things. It means the right to work together with people without fear of retaliation, and it means protection from unfair firing. That's one of the main things a union contract gets people. Right. Um, and workers who are not in a union, who are at-will employees, they can be fired you know, for any reason or no reason at all, with no explanation. Um, and that's not just bad for people who are unfairly fired. It means every worker is vulnerable because they know, you know, if they speak up because there was wage theft or they don't accept a boss's sexual harassment right. or advances, they're just vulnerable. So this law that fast food workers have been saying, we need that protection. Shouldn't it be the case that any time someone's going to be fired or disciplined, they get a reason. There's some policies in place. They know what the reason is. It's got to be a good one. And there's a process for making sure. Yeah. And it turns out we got the power to do that by local law in New York City, and that's what the Just Cause bill is. So give me a little bit more. So you've got two specific bills here. One would be about Just Cause specifically for fast food workers. The other one would be about seniority and firing, right? That's right. You have to do the seniority for layoffs to prevent a kind of backdoor. So the, mm -hmm. the Just Cause bill, it's pretty simple. It just says you've got to have a good cause to fire someone. And obviously... You can set up policies and procedures that make clear, you know, what the work duties are and what the kinds of things you have to do are, but you've got to have a good reason when you fire someone, and it sets up a process for arbitration or going to court if someone is fired and they don't believe there was a good reason. That's mm -hmm. the just cause bill. Then the second bill says if you're going to structure something as a layoff, right. then it has to... Uh, be by seniority, because otherwise an employer could just do, you know, through the back door, mm -hmm. calling something a kind of targeted layoff, what they would no longer be able to do as a firing. So this builds on some of the other things that we've seen that have sort of been done through local law, but have focused on this particular workforce, the fast food workers. Why specifically focus on fast food workers with this bill? Yeah. You know, I think the first reason is because they're organizing, and that's <laughs> how organizing works. You know, yep. people get and they discover their power together and they understand it's not just them that have experienced a problem and they build power to make demands and then elected officials like me are, are responsive and yeah so like this started when fast food workers had the courage to do those strikes as part of the fight for 15 back in that November you know five plus years ago and as they came together after making their wage demands they came to the New York City Council and said we need more stable schedules and a fair work week, and we worked on legislation to help them do that. 
they won this great bill that hasn't gotten enough attention, the Fast Food Empowerment Act, mm-hmm, that lets right. them voluntarily deduct money from their wages to go to this uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization called Fast Food Justice, which supports their worker organizing. Unfortunately, fast food workers, National Labor Relations Board has ruled, can only, for now at least, organize at the level of their their one franchise employer, not McDonald's, but right. just whoever owns the individual McDonald's or two. So that's not good turf for union organizing. So they created this sector-wide organization, Fast Food Justice, um, and they've kept meeting and getting together. And it was in those meetings that people talked more and more about the kinds of unfair firings they had experienced and the workplace conditions that they were experiencing as a result and came up with this idea of needing protection from it. So it's, you know, it's a good place to start, I think, for two reasons. One, it honors organizing. They're making this demand. You know, a couple of employers have said to me, well, why just the fast food sector? And I mean, my answer to that is if you're saying that workers in other sectors should also be protected from unfair firing, then I'm really in agreement with you. Let's do fast food. And we'll expand it from there. Just like the $15 minimum wage in New York started with fast food, but now covers covers all workers. If you're going to do something in just one city, you do have to be mindful about what the consequences are. And certainly, you know, that argument people might make that a company would consider relocating uh, if standards got too high is much harder to do uh, in fast food. You can't, you know, serve Midtown folks a Big Mac from New Jersey or Connecticut, uh, even if they will let you fire workers for no reason. You know, there obviously is automation here, but the idea that people should be cowed into jobs without protection or dignity, you know, by the threat that their work will be automated is it's really quite offensive. So, you know, folks took a, a real good hard look, were open-eyed about it, and that's what got us to yesterday. What are the next steps for these bills? So they just got introduced yesterday, and the next thing they'll need is a hearing. Oh, one thing I will say is... Um, yeah. Uh, there's a really good report that Center for Popular Democracy and NELP did of surveying over 500 mm-hmm. fast food workers, uh, showing this is not just a couple of people's stories, but really a, a, a serious and pervasive challenge across the fast food sector. Um, the next step in our process will be to have a hearing. That is not scheduled yet, but I'm optimistic that sometime in the next few months we'll have a hearing. There's a lot of support from other council members. The, the speaker you know, has been a real you know, supporter of of legislation to make uh, to make put workplace protections in, fa- in place and honor organizing. That'll be a great hearing. You know, workers will come tell their story. Employers will come talk about things from their perspective. I hope we'll get some employers, whether union employers or there are obviously non-union employers who nonetheless put in place a good employee handbook and policies. Um, you know, everyone is better off when the way a workplace works is we try to help people succeed. We give them constructive feedback if they're not doing well. We try to help them do better. No one wants a workplace where one employee is just like consistently causing trouble for all the other people in the in the place. So there needs to be an ability to, you know, have progressive discipline, give people feedback. Um, and what I hope we'll get is that, you know, those workplaces that treat their workers with dignity you know, that would never fire anyone unfairly and that put the policies in place that help people thrive, that that's good for workers, but it's, it's good for employers as well. So, so hopefully that hearing will be a real place to, to make the case. Yeah. And then after that, we'll uh, work to round up the votes and get the mayor's support and pass the bill and, and have him sign it. 
And we'll put a link to that report on the Descent website. So last thing before I let you go, we just, before we got on the phone here, found out that Amazon is not going to locate its headquarters in New York because of community opposition. Yep. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, oh, it's great. I mean, look, even the way they made the decision, announced the decision to pull out so abruptly, I really think makes clear what we've been saying all along is true. Amazon's not interested in, like, the social compact. They want to make all the rules. Yeah. That's how the bidding process worked. That's why they went around the Euler process. That's why they made clear they would not provide a neutral playing field for union organizing, even amidst bad labor practices, that they want to keep providing technology to ICE. They want to undermine the ability of the Seattle City Council to adopt public policy to address homelessness and housing. Like, that's what a monopoly wants to do. And, you know, look, we want job growth here, but we want companies that are going to respect our rules, pay their taxes, and be a good neighbor. And if what you want is to say, we'll make all the rules, you do it the way we say, you bid away your tax break, uh, your tax base, you know, and you accept everything we're going to stuff down your throat or we won't come, like, that's not the social compact we have, and it's definitely not the kind of partner New York City needs. So this is a good day for organizing. It would not have happened without just fierce on-the-ground organizing from a really broad coalition of, of grassroots groups that woke elected officials up and made a real big difference. That was Brad Lander of New York City Council. As we record today's episode, whether the government will shut down again this weekend is still an open question. There's a deal on the table in Congress, one that the New York Times calls a stinging legislative defeat for Trump on what might be his last chance to build his wall. But it still includes over $1.3 billion for 55 miles of steel post fencing on the border, more than $560 million for drug inspection at ports of entry, as well as money for 600 more Customs and Border Protection officers and 75 immigration officers. So we'll certainly have more to say in the future about this deal if it goes through. But for today, we're talking about the workers who have been affected by the shutdown, their needs, their organizing, and what labor has been doing to fight back, including the work stoppage and threats of general strike that stopped the first shutdown and forced this deal. First up, we talk with Sarah Nelson, international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, whose call for a general strike in response to the shutdown energized all of labor and whose leadership has been key to ending the first shutdown and ensuring labor is ready to react to the second. Let me see. I was just looking at the news saying that they have a tentative deal to halt the next shutdown, but it looks like nobody's happy with that. So if there's another shutdown this weekend, what can we expect to see from your workers, all workers? What's in the works? Sure. Um, so first of all, it's really important that everyone understand that it would not be another shutdown. It would be a continuation mm-hmm. of the 35 yeah. days that we've already endured. So we're calling it day 36. Right. And so I think first and foremost, we have to talk about what is going to happen if people do nothing. If right. there is a day 36 and nobody does anything, the system is on the verge of collapse. We saw that on day 35. And the, all we've done is hit the pause button. Um, these federal workers have not even received all of their back pay. They are not scheduled to get all of it until March 5th. If there is a day 36, that means that they know they're not getting that and they don't know when this is going to get resolved. All of that uncertainty and stress puts us in the exact same position that we were on January 25th. So if we do nothing, 
the airline industry may be, uh, you know, right on the cliff here of falling apart because the capacity will have to get pulled down in order to run a safe operation. Um, That means then that my members' jobs, flight attendants, pilots, uh, mechanics, customer service agents, everybody who works in and around the airport is affected immediately. And that then has, of course, a ripple effect across our economy. So that is what we are trying to avoid. And that is why we are saying Americans everywhere come join us at airports on the 16th yeah. uh, to protest. And so we're, we're being very loud about that and getting big partners to join us in that. And you can follow the growing number of people who are signing up both to do events and to join uh, this effort at generalstrike2019.org. And we will continue that. And we'll continue the call for a general strike, even though we're realistic about the fact that if you were really going to be conducting a general strike, it would likely take months, if not a year, in preparation to do that. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking about it, because the action by our government is unprecedented in terms of hurting the average American, putting the average American at risk here, and potentially flinging our entire economy into a disastrous state. And it requires an unprecedented response. Oh, and let me not yeah. forget, yeah. The, at the heart of this, of hundreds of thousands of people who have been forced to come to work without pay. Right. I mean, we should call this what it is, slavery. And it is something that we have said that we do not support in this country. Yeah. So, so it's absolutely important that we continue to talk about a general strike as a response to this unprecedented move against the American people. Yeah. So... That we will continue to talk about. So in terms of the end of the previous shutdown, you know, me and other people who are longtime labor watchers were really struck by the fact that it was airport workers, specifically, you know, air traffic controllers, considering Reagan's uh, attack on air traffic controllers that really shut down strike activity in the U.S., back in the 80s, and then that airports are just becoming a center of protest and action in the Trump era. I'm thinking about the taxi workers' strike around the Muslim ban. So we talk about the airport as a center of American life and the importance of the work that goes on there and how much power that ends up giving your workers, everybody else who's at the airports, to win victories in the Trump era. So first of all, I would say that we made a grave mistake in the PATCO strike and not understanding how we are all connected and not understanding how individual workers' issues and their efforts to gain fair contracts and recognition of their work is directly tied to the rest of us being able to fight for the same issues and also to be able to stand up generally for labor rights in this country. That was a grave mistake. We should learn from it, and we should never allow it to be repeated. And here we are. People can't help but think of that. Yeah. Anyone who has any labor consciousness certainly can't help but think of that. But even in just historical perspective in our in our country, there's a general recognition that that happened at some point, even if people don't understand the full ramifications or what was surrounding it. Yeah. And so we do have tremendous power. If airline workers had stood together at that time, we could have stopped that. We could have stopped the attack and the signal from the government that it's okay 
to plow over workers' rights. It's okay to plow over workers and to really just put them in a position of being forced to do what those with power and money want them to do. And we've seen a steady decline both in union membership as well as strikes in this country. And the result of that has been the American worker working harder than ever for less pay and not being able to keep up. So here we are. We're in a moment where we're seeing the rubber band break all across the country. We're seeing the teachers rise up. People are understanding their power in their workplace. And to your point about our power at airports, yes, airports are where people converge. Uh, People of all races, genders, cultures, and creeds come together and actually climb into a metal tube together. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Literally, like we have have a little microcosm of America on every flight that is up in the air. And this is really a central place that everyone can relate to, even those people who fly in corporate jets because they take off and land at airports too. Mm -hmm. And they count on people buying tickets to come to come to their cities where they're putting on events and where they're selling what they're selling and they count on all that as well. So airports are a place where people pay attention and if you can get people to pay attention and you can get people to understand how this affects them, there's tremendous power in that and we should use it. And so separately, you know, I talked all about sort of the message out to the public and a call to the public to say this matters to you and this will directly affect you and this is why you should show up and we'll continue to do that we on 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 a very separate track uh we had an emergency webcast with flight attendants last night to really define what's at stake here and to help them understand that they also have rights separate and distinct Um, from what we're talking about in terms of a general strike, Mm -hmm. that is to look out for their own safety. And that is a right that they have every single day that they go to work, and that right exists because they are in safety-sensitive positions where they're looking out for the good of the public. Mm -hmm. And they see that there are lives in danger. They can withhold their service and say, I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to fly this flight because... I believe that everyone is in danger. And so that is a right that they have today, and we will continue to assess that, and we are making very clear to our members that they have that right to withhold their service if the scene becomes too unsafe. And so I noted your tweet about how you trained as a teacher before becoming a flight attendant. And it's so striking to me how the leadership right now in labor is coming from teachers. It's coming from flight attendants. It's coming from workers, not on a factory line, but who work every day with people who are responsible for the safety of people. And that, you know, flight attendants were literally the field where the idea of emotional labor was invented. (laughs) But what is it about workers like flight attendants, teachers, nurses, that's making them the leaders and today's labor movement? Well, I love my brothers, but let's be clear, all those professions that you just named are high percentage of women. And women, (laughs) women get results. Whether it's in the home for our children, women are focused on the results and they're not afraid to speak with people who don't agree with them or fight fiercely for the people that they love. And that's really what's going on here, I believe, is that you've got people who are saying that failure is not an option Mm -hmm. and that we are going to fight fiercely for the people that we love. And the people that we love are our students and the people that we love are our uh, fellow flying partners and the people that we love are the passengers who are in our care every day. And, you know, these people enrich our lives and 
we also see on our planes, quite frankly, mm-hmm. that, yeah, we deal with the, you know, the occasional jerk, and everybody remembers that. But let's face it, flight attendants know firsthand that Americans are good people, mm-hmm. and that we're, there's way more that we have in common than we have that's different. Because we take off and land on thousands of flights every day. And if our country were really in the state that some people were trying to make us believe it's in, there is no way those planes could take off and land safely. There is just no way. You're jamming people in, completely uncomfortable, forced to sit together, you know, forced to have to do things that um, they don't want to do, stay in their seats with their seatbelt on when it's bumpy, um, put their tray tables up, have to put their phones away, have to do all of those those things, and by the way, come through uh, security where they have to not take their guns, not take their knives, and (laughs) all of the other restrictions that they have, and they have to come and behave themselves, and they do. And not only do they behave themselves, but they're generally kind and nice to the people around them, and that's what we see every day. And so I think also in the teaching profession and the people who are on the front lines, the people at our post offices and flight attendants and people who are interfacing with the general public, mm-hmm. we actually know that the vast majority of people in this country actually care very deeply for the people who are next to them. So we know that we can lead a dialogue that actually brings people together and is results-oriented. In this moment now, you know, thinking about reversing the decline of PATCO, what are we learning about power from this moment in labor, from labor being involved in ending the first shutdown, from the teacher strikes, from all of this, in terms of reviving a labor movement that really fights for the working class? We are learning that power starts in the workplace. And if we understand that and we come together in our workplace, the rest of American life will follow, including the rest of politics. That was Sarah Nelson, international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, and you can learn more at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org. Now, it might surprise you to learn that many of the workers who were directly affected by the shutdown were not, in fact, employed by the federal government. Instead, they were contractors. They were working typically low-wage, precarious jobs for individual private sector vendors who have been contracted by the federal government for various services. I spoke with George Faraday of Good Jobs Nation, an advocacy group that has been helping to organize and unionize some of these subcontracted workers about what these private sector workers are facing in the coming weeks and months as they try to put their lives back together again after an economic setback that they may never recover from. We all know a little bit about how the shutdown worked out in terms of how federal workers have sort of been in the midst of all this havoc. Can you give us a sense of how contractors have been faring? Because we do know that their circumstances differ quite a bit from federal workers who, despite their hardships, do have some protections that uh, contractors do not. The federal agencies that were shut down are responsible for about $180 billion worth of of contracts every year. And that suggests that there's probably about a a million workers on those contracts. And we know that a lot of stop work orders went out from those agencies, um, including FEMA, for instance, uh, sent out several hundred as soon as the uh, the shutdown took effect. Uh, And that uh, essentially means that the contracts to... uh, work on my contract and they're not going to get paid anything. Uh, and then the contract 
business has the decision of whether to lay off its uh, workers or not, given that they no, longer, they no longer have any work to do and they're also not getting paid by the government for their work. And we know that at least some contract workers have been laid off and uh, there's every reason to suppose that it's especially the low-wage workers who are most likely to uh, suffer in this way because they're more likely to work for small businesses uh, and their labor is probably regarded as you know, somewhat uh, fungible or disposable by their employers. I, they can always hire more janitors, but they can't necessarily hire more rocket scientists. So, uh, and the other key aspect of this is that uh, in all the shutdowns in the past, and so far also with this one, the contract workers have not got back pay, uh, unlike the direct federal workers. So they're permanently out of about five weeks' pay which for folks who are already living paycheck to paycheck is, uh, is a major blow. I know that Good Jobs Nation has done research in the past on how many of these people are low-wage workers, um, you know, what their working conditions are, but can you give us a sense of the types of work people are doing and the range of jobs? Over the last uh, several decades, the, um, the federal government has increasingly uh, relied on, on contracted out workers, and um, a lot of estimates suggest there are more contract workers than there are direct federal employees. I mean, the contract workforce looks, in fact, a lot more like the American workforce as a whole than the federal, direct federal workforce does, um, because you've got hundreds of thousands of, uh, of low, very low-paid workers, building services, janitorial, security guards, uh, food services, who earn roughly as much as uh, folks in those industries in the, in the private sector, uh, which is obviously not a lot. The uh, National Park Service uh, was one of the uh, agencies shut down, and, and they um, there's about um, 20,000 people who work on uh, national parks concessions. Once the, uh, the parks are closed, the concessions would be closed too. We in particular were in touch with workers at uh, the National Zoo who are directly employed by uh, the Friends of National Zoo. Um, they do food service, gift shops, and uh, uh, I guess greeting. Of, of visitors. Uh, so uh, one week into the shutdown, um, those folks were all laid off. Can you talk about the unionization factor here? Um, how many of these people are represented by unions? The workplaces which uh, we've been active organizing, like the Senate cafeteria, um, the, the zoo I mentioned, uh, uh, there's a food court at the Pentagon. None of these workplaces uh, were unionized. And that also puts the workers in a you know, more vulnerable position when it comes to uh, getting back pay and so forth from employers when they go back to work. So union representation for these workers would actually help with the back pay situation? Yes, I I think it would. It doesn't necessarily stop them not getting back pay, but I'll give you an example. So, I mean, there is currently a bill uh, built in in the House and uh, the Senate to get back pay for lower wage contract workers. But the mechanism is to reimburse contractors if they decide to award back pay to their workers. And uh, I think it's foreseeable that unionized employees will be in a much stronger position to go to their employer and say, okay, it's free for you, please get us the back pay. Whereas uh, in the unorganized sector, uh, workers won't have that kind of leverage and they'll have to basically depend on the goodwill of their employer.
Can you step back a little bit and just talk about how this, how the government got to be in a situation where, for instance, when the government shuts down, half of the workers or over half of the workers who are out of work are, you know, on furlough are basically not actually working for the government? Like, how, how did we get to this system where so much of um, the, the duties that are conducted by our federal government are, in fact, done by private sector employees? Yeah, that, that's a great question. There's been, over a long period of time, a lot of ideological pressure to uh, keep government small, which actually hasn't really led to significant or any cuts in federal spending, but it has led to capping the size of the federal workforce, which I think hasn't grown since probably the early 60s, even though federal spending has, has increased a lot. So it, to some extent, it's a sleight of hand. Um, there's also been pressure to privatize certain parts of the government because uh, they're supposedly um, uh, efficiencies. And, you know, I, I, I'm not totally opposed to the idea of privatizing certain functions, let's say, janitorial work that are also commonly done in the, in the private sector. But what I do find objectionable is that once these functions are privatized, then the federal government, possibly in the American public, seems to wash its hands. Uh, as to the welfare of these workers, that seems to me just plain wrong. I mean, if there are flexibilities in privatisation, fine, but it shouldn't be at the expense of, of not paying or exploiting uh, workers who actually provide a vital public function. And I think the shutdown dramatically illustrates how unfair uh, this process can be. Right. And conversely, um, were all of the affected workers indeed employees directly of the federal government, fair to say that the government would be on the hook for a lot more livelihoods uh, than just the ones that are currently eligible for back pay and, you know, just eligible for back pay based on a special combination that was passed by Congress. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, uh, and also you, they would have more workers that it would be requiring to work without pay. Um, and um, and then facing, I mean, facing probably successful legal action from, from those those workers, but they've sort of minimized that exposure by uh, outsourcing over half of government. Right. Um, and so would you say then that this is perhaps uh, not just, um, you know, a wrong situation, but perhaps, um, you know, a deliberate, a deliberately orchestrated one? I'd certainly say it represents um, a deliberate attempt to avoid taking responsibility for a lot of the workers Americans actually depend on. Uh, so taking full responsibility for as few of them as, as possible, which then makes things like this shutdowns, uh, this, this game of political chicken more possible than it would be uh, if you had been laying off, you know, say, two million federal workers, direct federal workers, which is what would have happened if there hadn't been all this outsourcing in the past. Your organization, in addition to doing this research on this workforce, has also been instrumental in helping push forward some unionization efforts. Is unionization perhaps an answer or at least a, a partial countervailing force to this drive towards privatization? Um, and do we see that playing out in terms of the recent unionizations of contractors that we have seen? The only reason why these um, back pay bills are, are currently in Congress and uh, seem to be getting a, a good number of co-sponsors um, is because one of the major unions representing contracted out workers, which is SEIU 32BJ, 
um, has uh, has been lobbying for this. Is that bill that would apply not just to SEIU workers, but all, to all contractors? Yes, definitely. Uh, yes, it, it it will help all low and uh, let's say medium low paid workers. And that was George Faraday of Good Jobs Nation. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. The part of the show where we discuss things we read and liked and wish we had written, but alas, did not. My pick is by Paul Mason. It is in New Statesman, the American edition, called Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal is radical, but it needs to be credible too. And I found it introduced some healthy skepticism into the Green New Deal that everyone has been celebrating, uh, and rightfully so, but with some caveats. Paul Mason takes a look at what the ambitions behind the Green New Deal are, louds them, but also talks about some of the potential pitfalls and the challenges ahead. Now, you've heard about the Green New Deal already. It's the big idea that the young vanguard of the Democratic House majority is seeking to push as an opening salvo against Trump for the next two years, as well as a decisive platform on which to wage a post-Trump broad-based progressive agenda for both the economy and the environment. Mason looks at what it all means for the politics of climate change globally and labor in an increasingly precarious U.S. labor market, as well as a wider world in which economic precarity is going to be a fact of life going forward. Certainly the aims of the Green New Deal are monumental. Total decarbonization within a decade, massive expansion of renewables, basically an abolition of fossil fuels as part of the nation's current energy supply, and unprecedented stimulus for the economy combined with a jobs guarantee. This is all to be accomplished while dramatically curbing global warming in line with global benchmarks. And this is all going to be adhering to an industrial plan that stretches well beyond even what FDR envisioned probably with his original New Deal. The basic bullet points are for the most part not new ideas. They draw on long-standing principles of a just transition to a post-carbon economy. These are things that the labor movement has long been advocating for, at least the progressive strata of the labor movement. I mean, under the Obama administration, it got quite a bit of attention through groups like Green for All and the Blue-Green Alliance, but ultimately that came to a grinding halt under Trump. And also passed Past efforts really fell short because they failed to deliver the wide-scale changes needed, at least in the immediate term, uh, to lay the groundwork for an effective green economy. So this can't be done by nibbling around the edges of the status quo. Lawmakers need to be willing to upend the industries that have long been pillars of American capitalism, and it requires some nerves of steel on the part of progressive insurgents in Congress. And beyond that, it requires the backing of a mass movement that ties together working communities around the world with an unprecedented degree of unity all without alienating any of the workers who might be most vulnerable to the turmoil that will inevitably ensue with such an enormous national project. Can the Green New Deal deliver on all these multiple, sometimes competing or even conflicting fronts? Mason observes that compared to FDR's New Deal from the Depression era, the plan presented by Ocasio-Cortez has both extreme risks and extreme rewards. 
I quote, with the 21st century economy that is heavily financialized and segmented, it would probably take even greater regimentation, command planning, and the suppression of intellectual property rights to achieve what the Green New Deal proposes, namely the reduction of U.S.'s net carbon emissions to zero within the next 10 years. It would mean scrapping all fossil fuel burning transport systems except commercial airliners. It would mean rebuilding the automobile industry and the energy industry more or less from scratch and it would entail behavioral changes unprecedented in peacetime, unquote. So to accomplish this, it's clear that you cannot simply rely on the dynamics of the free market to spur this change. You kind of need to be a little bit coercive. Um, nor, of course, can you rely on the liberal uh, goodwill in which uh, companies magically respond to uh, incentives and regulations that are supposed to steer them in a greener direction. In Mason's view, you would need something akin to economic nationalism based on aggressive state planning. Call it green Stalinism for the 21st century. Okay, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but this is not going to be a cakewalk. Mason is wary of the over-reliance on rather untested economic theories also that have appeared in the political groundswell surrounding the Green New Deal, uh, namely the mentions of modern monetary theory, um, MMT as it's known. Now, this is treading fairly risky territory in Mason's view, building an intellectual framework, he argues, for the fiscal and monetary policies needed to deliver the Green New Deal is not an optional extra, maybe rather than tinkering with the monetary system and hoping that stimulus basically uh, creates itself, you might want to get more grounded about how this will ultimately be financed. Now, ultimately, the other aspect of this is that the green transition must be a global project fundamentally. So a Green New Deal that works just for Americans and involves just tinkering with monetary markets or even a program of robust green Keynesianism um, might end up being kind of worthless if it works at the expense of the environments and the livelihoods in the countries that are in the global south. So can all this be done, Starting with America, what are the ethical implications of such an aggressive economic program? Will we be leading as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proclaims, or will we be in a situation where we're actually competing with some of our trade partners, even as we're supposedly mobilizing towards this broader green horizon for all? It is a bold plan, he writes, for the rehumanization of the economy. It contains a coherent narrative about what to do if not yet how to pay for it, and it has already changed the game of Democratic Party politics. But making the Green New Deal a reality requires not just a sweeping plan on what to achieve. In many ways, that is the easy part, and the resolution was a great start, but far more uncertain is the plan to A, pay for all this, and B, make it a reality that the entire public can buy into. Of course, radicals famously avoid getting bogged down by fiscal contingencies, and we should not let the crossing of the I's and the dotting of the T's be the enemy of the greater good here. But the economics of such a plan is where green democratic socialism will truly be put to the test. It is a test on which the fate of the world and the planet may be hinged, and we only get one chance to get it right. Alfonso Cuaron's movie Roma, released simultaneously on Netflix and in theaters this year, has gotten a lot of acclaim and a bunch of awards nominations, too. More importantly to belabored listeners, the National Domestic Workers Alliance was given permission to run an organizing campaign using the film to draw attention to the plight of domestic workers, so you may well have heard about it from NDWA. 
All that is well and good, but in an incisive piece for Blindfield Journal, Sophie Lewis takes on the question of Quaron's real-life and fantasy nannies and asks whose story is actually being told in Roma. Laboria Rodriguez was Quaron's real-life nanny, fictionalized in the film as Cleo, who is played by the justifiably lauded first-time indigenous actress Yalitza Aparicio. Rodriguez has been accompanying Quaron to promote his film, underlining supposedly the way she became one of his family. It's a familiar line to belabored listeners, probably, the way the domestic workers are told that they're one of the family when they make demands for more pay, for their own time. But a family from which one can be fired, well, is it a family? Lewis writes, quote, Thus, Cleo in Veracruz ends up working doubly hard to manage the children, despite Sophia's decree that they are not allowed to make Cleo work because she's on holiday. She's working very hard, one might say, at the appearance of not working at all. At this crucial time in the family's history, when the conjugal union was falling apart, it was imperative that the labor of kinship maintenance, which racialized reproducers have always carried out on behalf of the white family, be utterly naturalized and concealed. The image of the six of them, tightly clasping each other, all grouped around a collapsed Cleo kneeling on the sand, represents this theoretically wonderful sticking together, this labor of love. I find it ghoulish. End quote. The labor of love, Lewis notes, serves to hide under a veil of equality what is so unequal about the situation. She writes, We see hypnotically aestheticized, oiled, monochrome visions of prepubescent siblings and adults ordering a racialized docent around while sweetly chorusing, We love you, Cleo. We'd miss you if you weren't here. She says, I love you too, it's true, even behind their backs, even of the worst behaved of them. But isn't that precisely, as the Italian autonomous feminists saw, what's so damn evil, so damn insidious about the conjuncture? She continues, it is infamously capitalism's new mantra, do what you love, love what you do. In this sense, it seems to me that I like being dead is one of the many moments where Quaron's film shows, even if it doesn't know, the obliterating misery that is class subjection. As I see it, it's a telling incident, an unwitting eruption, which exposes the mockery that work, in its unfreedom, necessarily makes of the idea of love. This scene, among others, confirms that Roma is smarter than itself, smarter, certainly, than its director has the power to understand. End quote. The complicated nature of such work is profoundly hard to discuss. Many domestic workers who I've talked to who've been guests on this show, in my family, do love their work, even if that work, or particularly, rather, if that work involves caring for children. Many teachers, nurses, doctors, parents, retail workers, flight attendants love their work. That doesn't mean that it is not at the same time exploitative, and that we should not be prepared to hear demands for more. Spoiler alert, this is the subject of the book I'm currently working on. So whatever you thought of Roma the film, I appreciate Lewis raising these challenges to its portrayal. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on the Amazon headquarters battle, government shutdowns, borders, and those who cross them. Thank you again to Descent for hosting us, and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. And an extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag. We also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership or about our new Solidarity subscription program and t-shirts at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. 
You can always email us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org if you are a domestic worker or federal contractor, if you're a flight attendant or air traffic controller, a striking teacher or a fast food worker. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. We'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>